At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. My name is Abraham Phillip, and it's a delight and a privilege to be here this morning with you. Pastor Chris is uh, ministering with our Royal Oak campus, and uh, he asked me to switch with him, and I was just glad to do so. What do you say to Chris when he tells you to switch? Um, no, no, sir, you got to find somebody else. Anyway, uh, he's over there ministering at the Royal Oak campus, and Tonight, he will be speaking at our collective um, on a subject that is uh, very uh, important. He's going to be talking on the subject of sexuality. So would you keep him in prayer that as he ministers at Royal Oak and then as he ministers to our college and young adult, adults tonight, that the word would go forth and that God would give Pastor Chris the words to say as he deals with a very difficult and, but very relevant subject for our young adults. One of my favorite TV advertisements debuted during Super Bowl 39. That was in 2005. And it showed a man coming home to his apartment with a bag of groceries. And he opens the door. He greets his fluffy white cat, walks into his narrow kitchen, places his groceries down. He opens up a jar of tomato sauce, pours it into the saucepan, and puts it on the stove and turns it on. And while he's got that going, he turns around to the countertop behind him, starts taking out veggies, and he takes out a knife and he starts to cut up those veggies. In fact, he's so focused on getting his veggies right as he prepares this romantic dinner for his wife that he's completely clueless about what's going on behind him. And what's going on behind him is his fluffy white cat has jumped onto the countertop next to the stove. And without warning... That cat reaches out a paw and knocks that pan of sauce to the floor where it makes a royal mess. And the cat thinks that's pretty funny. And so into that mess, this fluffy white cat jumps down. And so this man who's cutting up the veggies is surprised. He turns around and sees this mess. And so he promptly reaches down to pick up this cat, now dripping with red sauce. And no sooner does he stand up with this cat that the door opens and his wife walks in. And what does she see? She sees her husband holding a cat dripping red and a knife in his other hand. <laughs> and the message comes across the screen, don't judge too quickly. No kidding. Maybe you've been there. I certainly have. Where we've made snap decisions. Judgments based on what we see by what a person looks like, by the clothes they're wearing, by the length of their hair, the makeup they're wearing, the colors that they've got on, and we make a snap decision about the value and the worth of that person. I'm guilty of that. I, I have to confess, I'm very guilty of that. But I'm willing to bet that so are you. But in addition to making snap judgments, perhaps many of us have been on the receiving end of those snap decisions ourselves. Perhaps we've received rejection because we didn't fit in with the crowd. Maybe we didn't have what everybody else had. Maybe our bodies were the wrong shape or the wrong size. Or for whatever reason, whatever criteria, they made a snap decision about us and we felt the pain 
of rejection. Whether we're giving snap decisions or we're receiving snap decisions, the Bible has something to say about that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2, where we continue in our message series in the book of James. This letter, written by the half-brother of Jesus, has been talking about living faith. And last week, we saw how mature faith values possessions in their proper, puts possessions in their proper place. And we saw how we as mature Christians need to value people, specifically the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And today, as we come to the first 13 verses of James chapter 2, James is going to take that idea further, and he's going to talk about partiality. He's going to talk about favoritism. And what I want to leave with you this morning is that mature faith sees the soul through the shell. Mature faith sees the soul through the shell. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here's what James writes. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So James starts with a very simple command. He doesn't mince words. He says, don't show partiality. Partiality comes from two Greek words. When you put them together, it says it means to receive by face. That means we look at somebody and we assess a value and a worth to that person by what we can see in their face or in their attire. And we have lots of words in our culture today for that kind of partiality, don't we? Bias, discrimination, racism, favoritism. There are all kinds of words we use today, but at the essence of all of those words is the fact that we are ascribing a value and a worth to a person because of what we can see. And what James is saying here in this verse is very profound. We are not to show partiality to anyone, to anyone. He's saying that if you are a Christian and you call Jesus Christ Lord, then you cannot show partiality partiality, because being a Christian who follows Jesus Christ and being partial don't go together. They are mutually exclusive. Being partial is inconsistent with being a child of God. Now, James is going to give us an example, an example that's rooted in a socioeconomic context. He's going to give us an example of a partiality played out between a rich and a poor. But I want to just make a mention that that's just one of many ways that we can show partiality, isn't it? We can show partiality based on ethnicity, skin color, educational background, profession, what we drive, where we live. The list is endless on the things that we can show partiality for and about. And the Bible is very clear. It's all wrong. It's all wrong. We as children of God who call Jesus Christ Lord cannot and must not show partiality. Now James is going to give us two rules that should govern the way we are to treat each other. And in verses 1 to 3, actually 1 to 7, we're going to see that we are not to measure people by what they can give us. We are not to measure people by what they can give us. Let me read for you starting again in verse number 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or 
sit down at my feet. Let me pause there for just a minute and just set the context. Here we have this example. Two people walk into a context, and there's discussion and debate around the context. Traditionally, scholars have seen this context as a church service, that this poor man and this rich man have both come to church, and it's the middle of a worship context, and they're waiting to be seated. That's the traditional view. More modern scholars look at this context, look at the words that James uses, and they say that it's not a worship context, it's a religious court, that this rich man and this poor man have both come to this religious court to settle a dispute. And so we can argue about the minutia of this context, but the point and the principle James is making is very simple. We as believers in Jesus Christ cannot show partiality. Now, I want to also say, before we jump into the specifics of the example, that James is not condemning the rich man for being rich, and he's not condemning the poor man for being poor. You get that, right? What he's condemning is the church for showing partiality. So with that context in mind, notice the two people who enter this scene. The first is a man who is certainly wealthy. How do we know that? He's wearing a gold ring. Today, that doesn't mean much because many people have a gold ring. But in the ancient world, a gold ring was very rare. In fact, you had stores that you, a person could go to to rent a gold ring for the evening. So it's not common. So the fact that this man is wearing a gold ring says he's very wealthy. In addition to the gold ring, he is wearing fine clothing. <clears throat> fine clothing doesn't quite capture the picture, the poetic language that James is using. In fact, the, the words he's using paint a picture of the fact that his, his clothes are luminous. They're glowing. So as this rich man walks into this context, he's met by an usher who is dazzled by the brilliance of this man. In fact, he's blinded by the bling, so to speak, and he's ushered to the best seat in the house. Right behind him comes another man. And the words that James uses to describe this man have the idea of abject poverty. His clothes, well, they're dirty. They're filthy. They're vile. And the usher meets this man. He doesn't like what he sees. He doesn't like what he smells. And so what does he do? He relegates this man to the back or tells him to sit on the floor. And notice what James says in verse number 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's telling this church that these ushers have made a distinction. And underneath that distinction, that partiality that they have made, are evil thoughts. What are those evil thoughts? You see, the usher who ushers that rich man to the best seat in the house is trying to curry favor with that rich man. He's thinking, what can I get out of that relationship? What can I get by getting this man to the best seat in the house? Perhaps he's thinking that rich man can get me a job. Perhaps by giving him the best seat in the house, I can get a way to ride in his ultra-luxurious camel carriage. Think about that. Or by, by, by favoring him, maybe he'll let me use his swimming pool. That'd be nice. You see, we curry favor with the people who are wealthy with the idea of what can we get out of that relationship. 
Now imagine with me that you pulled out your top 10 list of rich and famous people that you want to meet, and two of them walked down this aisle and sat next to you. What would you do? Would you treat them just like the person sitting in front or behind you? Or would you clamor for an autograph or a selfie or a handshake so you can go out and say, you know who I met today in church? I shook so-and-so's hand. Look at this picture. Don't we look good together? Don't tell me that you wouldn't do that. You're looking at me like I got horns or something. Come on. Yeah, we would want to post that as fast as we can on our Facebook or Instagram feed so that everybody can know we met so-and-so. Oh, yeah. And that's what James is talking about. We curry favor with those who are wealthy and those who are rich because deep down we're selfish. We're trying to see what we can get out of this relationship. By the way, that's the same reason we don't curry favor with the poor. The poor have nothing we want. The poor can do nothing for us. Therefore, we don't spend any time getting to know the poor, relating to the poor, or having a relationship with the poor. And so James condemns the church for showing partiality. And he goes on to give us two reasons why this behavior is wrong. Now, the first reason this behavior, behavior is wrong is because it's inconsistent with the sovereignty of God. Notice what he says in verse number five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. You see, time and time again in the scriptures, God has a very special care and concern for the poor. In the Old Testament, when he's speaking to his people Israel, he tells them, leave the corners of your field unharvested for the poor so that they can eat. He's always concerned about the poor and taking care of them. In the New Testament, when Jesus is on the scene, who was salvation extended to first? Remember his first disciples, Peter, James, and John? They were fishermen. They were at the bottom of the social order, and yet they had salvation first. In fact, Paul, when he's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, writes it this way. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, if God has chosen the weak, if God has chosen the foolish, if God has chosen the poor, then who are we to despise and reject the very people God has chosen. Because when we show partiality and we reject the poor, we are in inconsistent with the sovereignty of God. But there's a second reason that James brings out here, and that is because it's illogical. Notice the end of verse number six. <clears throat> are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? You see, because of the greed and selfishness of, of the cultures in this world, the rich tend to take advantage of the poor. That's not the case in every condition or, or case. It's the generic statement of a world that is full of sin. The rich tend to take advantage of the poor. And it was no different in the first century. If you were a poor person living in the first century and you needed money, you would approach someone who is rich. And they would be glad to give you a loan at a very high interest rate. 
And when you couldn't pay it back, they'd drag you into court where they could confiscate your home and your possessions and even your family. And James is writing to people who are being persecuted just that way. They've been scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution. They've been uprooted. They're scattered. They are at the mercy of some rich people who are dragging them to court and taking them to the cleaners, essentially. And James is saying, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you pandering and showing partiality to the very same people who are making your lives miserable? And on top of that, these rich people who are making your life miserable, they're blaspheming and ridiculing and mocking the name of Jesus. It's illogical. Why would you show partiality to these kind of people? Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's the first century. We're much better. We're so sophisticated in the 21st century. This isn't a problem for us, right? Not right. Yeah, we're much more advanced. We're much more learned. But none of that has helped us with this issue, has it? Technology has advanced and social media has come on the scene. And I have to tell you, I think we are in a worse situation than the first century ever was when it comes to putting up walls and divisions and showing partiality. How sad that this world continues to be divided. Friends, if you are children of God, that is not what God has called us to do. In fact, instead of looking at people and seeing what they can do for us, instead of being selfish in our relationships, what James is ultimately saying is that because we serve Jesus, who is our Lord and our Christ, and because his glory and his love has so saturated our lives, we don't need to be looking at other people for what they can give us. We have everything we need in him, amen? The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need, amen? And because I have everything, I don't need to look around and find out who can help me, whose swimming pool I can borrow, whose sports car I can drive. I got Jesus. I got everything I need. Friends, the gospel transcends ethnicities. It, 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 it transcends boundaries. Jesus at the cross brought down the dividing wall of all of these man-made divisions. There is no more Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor. There is nothing at the foot of the cross because the ground is level. Are you glad for that? Amen. That God has brought down the wall of division. That we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And because we have received mercy, because the love of God has overflowed in our lives, we, need, we have Him. And so we treat everyone the same, showing no partiality for rich or poor, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of skin color, regardless of what side of the tracks they live on. We show no partiality because we are children of God. Amen? The second lesson that James gives us here in verses 8 to 13 is that we are to measure people by God's standard. Notice verse number 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor <clears throat> as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So James here gives us another reason why this kind of partiality, this behavior is wrong. It's a theological reason. He said, when we show partiality, we go against the royal law. What's the royal law? Why is it called royal? 
because it was given to us by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you see, when Jesus came into this world, he came to establish a new kingdom, and that kingdom has a new ethic, and that ethic is the royal law. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And you know what he said? You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see what Jesus did? There were 613 laws that God had given the Israelites in the Old Testament. And Jesus took 613 laws and condensed them down to two. Love God, love people. And then the apostles in their writings takes those two laws from Jesus and condenses them down to one word. Do you know what that word is? Love. That's the kingdom ethic. That's what Jesus came to bring. That's the royal law. And that's why James says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. You're doing great. But if you show partiality, if you discriminate, if you have bias and prejudice in your heart, James very specifically says you sin and you're a lawbreaker. And I don't know if you noticed, but he goes on to use adultery and murder as his examples. Adultery, I mean, those things are serious stuff. Adultery and murder are part of the Ten Commandments. It's part of the law that God has given us. And James says, when you sin against the royal law, it's like you're breaking one of those. And if you break one of the commandments, you've broken them all. Wait a minute, that, that's not fair. How, how is it that that's fair? I mean, adultery is not as bad as murder, right? I mean, and showing partiality is nowhere near as committing adultery. I mean, come on, this, is, this isn't fair. Let me explain it this way. <clears throat> imagine I go golfing. I'm a lousy golfer. I, I, in fact, I'm terrible at it. But imagine I go golfing, and I'm, I'm at the first tee. And I've got my ball down, and I line up that shot, and I take a nice good swing at that, and I smack that ball. And it takes a nice slice right out of bounds and into the window of the neighbor. You know, I'm a Christian man. I'm a good believer. I'm going to go and apologize to that homeowner. So, so I walk over to that man's house, and as I get closer, I see this huge plate glass window, 12 feet tall, 20 feet wide, and right smack in the middle of that plate glass window is a golf ball-sized hole. And as I get closer, the homeowner storms out. He's got my golf ball in his hand, and he says to me, you're a lousy shot. Well, yeah, you're right. I I'm pretty lousy, and I'm very sorry. Here, let me help you with that. And I, I I reach into my pocket, I pull out my wallet, and I give him 20 bucks. Why? Why are you laughing? God, it's just a small hole. He's going to say, 20 bucks? That window cost me 20,000 bucks. You see, a little hole, breaking a little hole, I've broken the whole window, didn't I? I cheat on one test, that makes me a cheater. Break one law, makes me a lawbreaker. Friends, when we break the royal law, it's serious. We have broken them all. And I think it's very specific that James uses adultery and murder here because I think when we show partiality, when we discriminate based on what we see on the outside, what I think we're doing is we're murdering that person in our heart and we are judging them unjustly. And James says, we sin 
and we're a lawbreaker, and we stand in condemnation of the judgment of God. That's serious. And James says if you're a child of God and you call Jesus Christ Lord, you cannot have partiality in your heart. And notice James goes on to say in verse number 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, God has rescued us from the slavery of sin and death. He has brought us out from the bondage of a works-based religion. And he has brought us under the law of liberty. Now some of you are saying, but wait, didn't I just trade one law for another? Aren't I still in bondage? Well, No, you're not. You see, there is nothing more enslaving than to try to work as hard as we can to gain merit with God in our own strength, with our own effort, doing everything we can to live righteously before a holy God. It's the most enslaving thing in the world. The most freeing thing in the world is to recognize that it's not my merit that I can achieve, that all the merit I ever need is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? That Jesus on the cross has paid it all. Death was arrested and my life began at the cross. And so on the cross, mercy and grace met together. Amen? That everything we deserved fell on Jesus. And so James here says that the law of liberty sets us free. And the cross sets us free from a life of trying to live up to God's righteous standards on our our own. And it fills us with the power and the strength to willingly and lovingly obey God's law out of a heart of love. Because we want to, not because we have to. And then in verse number 13, James says... There's a correlation between mercy received and mercy given. i got to be careful and remind you that mercy is not something we can earn. It's not something we can ever earn. But what James is saying in verse number 13 is that there is a correlation that we cannot give what we have not received. You see, if your life has been given to Jesus Christ, then the mercy and grace of an almighty God has flooded your soul. And the way you treat people has been transformed because of the cross. You see, if you are willing to extend mercy to someone else, it demonstrates the fact that you have received mercy and that you serve a merciful God. But the opposite of that is also true. If you are unwilling and unable to extend mercy, it says that you serve an unmerciful God and you haven't received mercy. And James says that that's a very dangerous place to be because one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to come as the judge of the living and of the dead. And when we stand before him and if we have not received mercy, then what we receive is judgment. Friends, that's not what we want to receive. We want nothing to do with God's justice. We can't handle God's justice. We want God's mercy, don't we? What is mercy? Not getting what we deserve. Friends, what did we deserve? We deserved to be rejected. We deserved to be objects of God's wrath. We deserved to be condemned for our sin. We deserved death and hell. That's what we deserved. But do you realize that everything we deserved came on Jesus? That in one sense, while God showed mercy to you and me, 
God showed a different kind of mercy to Jesus, didn't he? You see, Jesus deserved to be welcomed. Instead, he was despised. Jesus deserved to be received. Instead, he was rejected. He deserved a crown of glory. Instead, he received a crown of thorns. He deserved to be exalted, but instead he was lifted up on a cross. He who was life and light died in your place and mine. What you and I deserved fell on Jesus at the cross. And because of the cross, we have mercy. Praise God. How many of you are glad for the mercy of God in your life? Amen. Friends, you and I have mercy. You and I who should have been rejected have been welcomed home. You and I who should have been the objects of God's wrath has now been called the sons and daughters of God. We who were stuck in the sinking miry clay have been put on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Mercy has triumphed over judgment at the cross. Amen? And you and I who have received mercy, we are called to display mercy. You see, the way you treat other people shows the tilt of your heart. How much mercy have you received? Perhaps you're here today and you have never received mercy. Perhaps you've never bent the knee at the cross. Friends, today's a great day to come to know Jesus Christ by faith. If you're here today and you've never accepted him, may I invite you to do that. To say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done. I'm sorry for the mistakes I've made. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I ask you to come in and save me to be the Lord and Savior of my life. And the Bible says the moment you do, mercy floods your soul. Grace and peace flood your soul. And Jesus transforms you and adds you into his kingdom. He calls you sons and daughters so that one day when you stand before him, instead of judgment, Jesus will say, that one is mine. That one belongs to me. Welcome home. Friends, we don't want justice. We want God's mercy. If you're here and you know Jesus Christ by faith, then live and extend the mercy God has given to you. Because Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Friends, that's the kind of ethic that we who love Jesus Christ should, should model and live out in our lives. Don't live like the world. Don't show partiality like the world. Don't fall for the division that the world is trying to get us into because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We're all the same. Let's love like Jesus loved us, extending the mercy God gave to you, extending the love that God showed to you. Perhaps this morning as you look across this auditorium, just look. Look to your right and look to your left. Don't look at me. Look, look around. Instead of look, talking to the same 10 people you talk to every Sunday, perhaps you find somebody you can talk to today that's new. Somebody who needs a word of encouragement. Somebody who needs a hug. Somebody that you can be the hands and feet of Jesus to. You can do that here. You can do that today. Friends, that's the kingdom ethic. You love God and love people. Looking past the shell and seeing the heart just like Jesus did with all of us. Amen? <clears throat> Father, thank you. Thank you for your reminder. Reminding us that you chose us before the foundation of the world. You didn't wait to see what kind of people we turn out to be before you chose us. And I'm so thankful you didn't. You chose us before the time began. And you chose to set your love upon us. Thank you for the mercy that flooded my soul. 
Thank you for the grace that you showed me because none of it I deserved. And so, Lord, I pray that those of us who love you, those of us who serve you, those of us who call you Lord and Savior, that we would be so captivated by your glory and your grace that we can't help but extend mercy to others. May that be true of us, not only here, but even as we leave, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at the restaurants, and wherever we find ourselves this week, that the mercy of God would extend through us, that it would explode through us to demonstrate that you have exploded in us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To you be the glory, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.